open with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, oftentimes, um, oftentimes we, uh, we like to plan out vacations uh, in our family. And uh, when we go on vacation, uh, we always talk about, well, are we going to drive straight through if we're going somewhere out of state? Are we going to stop at a hotel? Are we going to stay at a hotel when we're there? How many of you love vacationing? How many of you love going on vacation? doesn't matter where it is. How many of you love to stay in hotels? You like to stay in a hotel, right? So uh, how many of you have ever had to answer this question, right? You, you're purchasing airfare, you're booking a hotel, and this question is sometimes asked of you, what is the purpose of your trip? What is the purpose? Is it business? Is it pleasure? Is it both? Well, I've had the opportunity a few different times to travel overseas for missions trips. And, and when, when you go overseas, those questions become more pointed, even if you're vacationing. They become more pointed. And many times when you pass through customs, you're actually questioned by the customs officer that's there. He's like, or he or she is like, why are you here when you get to the other country? Like, how long are you going to be here? What is the nature of your visit? Where will you be staying? Who will you be staying with? Now, I've personally had to answer some of those questions. However, one time um, is completely unforgettable to me. One, one specific time. It was uh, probably my third or fourth year uh, of ministry in Florida. And we were, we were coming back from a service late while I was overseas, and it, it was completely pitch black. We were on some back road. There were no street lights where we were at. And in the middle of nowhere, I suddenly noticed this man was standing directly in uh, the middle of the road, and he was holding this red reflective sign. And our interpreter shouted uh, for our driver to stop the vehicle. And you could see the panic in our interpreter's face for just a moment. And he looks at all of us very worried and he says, let me do all the talking. Do not say anything. Give me your paperwork. And I remember as we sat there, uh, I began to feel these anxious feelings inside of me. Like my, the pit of my stomach was in knots. And this gentleman in a suit walked up to our vehicle, and then a cop came up after him, and then an army soldier came up after him, all in a matter of about 15 seconds. And as the, as the windows got rolled down, the soldier stuck his machine gun sort of through the window towards our driver, almost as if to scare him. And then the police officer started shining his, his flashlight on the man, and the guy in the suit began to ask our interpreter questions. And he seemed to speak almost sharply, and he snapped at our interpreter. And then he looked at us, and he began to speak in perfect English. Perfect English. And he asked us three questions. Three questions I will never forget for the rest of my life. Why have you come here, was the first question he asked. The second, who do you know here? And what are your plans? What are your plans? I was faced in that moment as well as the other three people in our car with the reality of being unprepared for a split second of having to give answers that I don't think I ever really contemplated before in my entire life. I was in such a dilemma and I didn't know what to say and what not to say. I tried to answer those questions for me as best as I could 
And the man in the suit seemed to stare through each and every one of us as we answered those questions. Right through us. He, hand, he handed back our interpreter the, the papers and he said one word to us. Go. Go. I remember as we drove off, I was flooded with a mixture of emotions in that moment of time. A part of me was feeling relieved. Another part of me was extremely thankful that my wife didn't find out that she's got to care for our two little ones and I'm stuck in a, in a, in a jail somewhere that she's not sure that I could get out. I was, I was happy that we were driving away very quickly from the situation. But then at the same time, it was almost like a somber moment in my life. And I think I was more reflective in that single moment in time that I'd ever been in a long time or maybe even forever in my entire life. And today, we come to the Lord's table. Today is communion, a time of reflection, a time of contemplation in some cases, a time that should fill us with a mixture of thoughts and emotions, a time to refocus a time to rethink, to readjust, to remember. A time to repent, a time also, though, to rejoice. Now, uh, be thankful this morning, church. I don't, I don't have a police officer with a flashlight. And I don't have a man in a suit who's going to ask us questions. I don't even have a military man with a gun who will point it at us. But I do want us to simply ask ourselves those three questions this morning. I think that the text that we are about to address to the Corinthian church was based upon these three questions. And so they are going to hit the screen, and they are actually already on the screen for you. For those of you who are note takers, I want you to write those three questions down. Why am I here today? Who do I know here, and what are my plans? What are my plans? Church, I, I want to read to you a portion of Scripture that I believe addresses many things uh, but these three questions, I believe, will be answered for us as we begin to break this apart. So let's start in verse number 17 of chapter 11. Verse number 17. And it says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes drinking, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Verse 23, for I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a man or a person examine themselves then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and, have, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and I'm asking, Lord, that our hearts would be reverent in this place as we reflect and remember the life and the sacrifice that you have given so that we could live peaceably with the Father. And so, God, I'm asking today for you to bring to our remembrance the day of our salvation, the day when death was arrested in our lives. God, teach us something through these, uh, these verses and this scripture today. Magnify, Lord, uh, what we need to see. Penetrate our hearts deep, God, so that we go away uh, reflective and meditating upon what we have learned today. And I ask and pray these things now. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen and amen. You know, Paul writes here to the Corinthian Christians the way that he might write to many congregations in today's society. He was saying, when you come together, it is not for the better, but it is for the worse that you have come together. You almost sense the angst in Paul's heart here as he, in essence, rebukes the church for how they're behaving right here and right now. And so the first thing I want us to note this morning is that there is a deep concern for the church. There's a deep concern for the church. This was a divided church in which he was talking to, one that was plagued with disunity, one that was plagued with prejudice and personal conflict, pride, and even false doctrine. And when they did come together, their purpose and their premise was completely wrong. The church had no longer been about worshiping Christ and growing together and developing relationships and serving one another and even reaching the lost, but the church had become nothing more to the Corinthians than an event. It had become nothing more than a time on the calendar, a tradition. You check it off every single week because you went. It became a religious practice, a place to be, a place to hang out with a few people. Then you'd get to eat and then you could just go home. And that's what it had become here in Scripture. Church, the danger of this mentality invading the church today is extremely real. The danger is there. And so it poses the question to us this morning, why have I come here today? Why have I come here today? Some here in this room, I believe, could probably give good answers, but God is not looking for good answers. He's looking for genuine answers. God is looking for genuine answers, and our answers this morning to this question will determine our attitude and our actions and how we respond to the Word of God today. But I want us to stop for a moment. We can't go any farther until we see something here that Paul pointed out. I want us to look back at verse number 19. He said, There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized that they may be recognized. You know, we usually think of factions and even divisions among Christians as nothing but problems. But Paul is revealing a purpose by God here that, that is saying that those who are genuine, 
or in some versions approved, may be recognized through those factions or divisions. Meaning that God allows factions so that over time, those who really belong to him would be made evident. They would be made evident. Which is why, church, which is why the second thing I want us to note this morning is that we must keep Christ the center of our attention. We must keep Christ the center of our attention. Look back with me at verse number 22. Verse 22 says what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, Paul says, I will not. In these verses, Paul is beginning to address the question of who do you know here? Who do you know here? Do we know Christ this morning? Do we know Christ? And I'm not talking about a head knowledge here today. I'm talking, do you know him personally? Do you know Christ intimately? Do you know Christ relationally in this place? Do we live our life as though we know Christ? Or did our life for the last week or even month bear tribute to the fact that we have a relationship with him or not? Have our actions over the last several weeks reflected that we know Jesus? Is Jesus, church, the center of your attention? Is Jesus the center of your attention? I've come to realize that what happens in so many marriages is that Jesus stops being the center of attention. I've come to realize that what happens in so many friendships is that Jesus stops being the center of attention. I've come to realize that what happens in so many churches is that Jesus has stopped being the center of attention and our lives become plagued by everything horizontal. And what can you do for me? What do I get out of this? What makes me happy? What makes me feel good? What can you give me to fulfill my dreams and my needs and my wants? Loved ones, church, Christian in here this morning, friend, every single relationship that we have must be centered on Christ. He has to stay the center of attention. I want you to look at Philippians 3.10. It's going to hit the screen. Paul said this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Church, are we passionately pursuing Christ this morning? Are we passionately pursuing his ways and his wills for our life and even his work? Are we passionately pursuing Christ's work today? Is, is Christ the most important relationship that you have? Is loving Jesus the highest priority in your life? Do you know him this morning? Do you know what he did for you? Do you know what he continues to do for you? We, we come to the Lord's table not because of what we have done or who we are. We come because of Christ. We come because
come because of Christ. And knowing Christ changes everything. Amen, church? I love the way that Paul puts an emphasis in his writings always on Jesus. There's always an emphasis on keeping the Lord in focus. On what he said about the meaning of his own death for us. You know the Last Supper was a Passover meal. The Last Supper was when Jesus, together with the disciples, according to the biblical command, celebrated the remembrance of Israel being delivered from Egypt to the Promised Land that began all the way back in the book of Exodus. Thousands of years before Jesus was even on the scene. And the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine were so important parts of the Passover meal. Jesus took those important pictures and reminders and he added them the meaning connected to his own death on the cross for you and I. In taking the bread, church, we are called to remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. The, the Passover meal featured unleavened bread made without yeast, both because yeast was a picture of sin and corruption in the Bible, but also because the bread needed yeast in order to rise and work. And the Egyptians wanted to get out of Egypt as fast as they could, and so they had no time to let their bread rise. And so the unleavened bread that was used as the Passover meal had scorch marks or stripes on it from the way that it was cooked and the way that it was baked, and it had pierce holes so that it would cook all the way through. In the same way, church, the body of Jesus was broken for you and I. He was without sin as the bread was without leaven. And his body bore stripes and was, and was pierced for us as the bread appeared to be on the table before the Jews. And in receiving the cup, we are called to remember the blood of Christ, which is the new covenant. The blood of Christ. The Passover meal featured several cups of wine, and each one of them had a different name. But the cup that Jesus was referring to was known as the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. And Jesus added to the idea of redemption from slavery in Egypt, the idea that his blood confirmed a new covenant that changed our relationship with God. But then it poses the question to us this morning, what is the new covenant all about? What is this new covenant all about for the life of the believer? It's about inner transformation, church. It's about cleansing from sin. It's about God's word and will in the life of every believer. It's about a new, close, personal relationship with God. I want you to look at, at the screen for just a moment and see what he said in the book of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Sound familiar to the song we were just singing a little bit ago? He says, my covenant that, my, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Listen to this, church. It's so important. He declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. 
Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can have a new covenant relationship with God. But many Christians live as if there is no inner transformation. They live that way. They live as if there's no cleansing from sin. They live as if there is no word or will of God for their life. They live as if there is no new and close personal relationship with God. The sad reality this morning that we face as a church is that many see salvation as just about heaven and that it doesn't affect their life right here and right now, church. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. Our salvation, church, should change everything about us tremendously. Amen? Salvation should change everything about us. I want you to look with me at some portions of Scripture that the Lord has really just been bringing to my heart. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then he says this, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. Meaning, don't live like your sinful old self. He says, but just as he who called you, speaking of God, who calls you, that he is holy, so be holy in all that you do. But it is written, be holy because I am holy. So we may be sitting in here this morning saying, okay, pastor, I'm a Christian, but what am I to do? Where do I go? How do I live? Paul just told us the Christian's duty is to be mentally ready. To be mentally ready. The Christian's duty is to be thinking and meditating upon truth. Why? That word prepare here in verse 13. If you would leave that verse on the screen. Therefore prepare. That word prepare in the Greek means to gird up. It refers to being tightened like a belt or clinching up a cord and a rope like tying something together in preparation for a certain action. You know, in ancient times, that concept referred to the gathering up of one's robes so that a person could move with haste quickly from one location to the next. They were preparing themselves with their belt or their sash so they would not stumble and fall. So they would not stumble and fall. Peter metaphorically applies that process to the mind of the believer. In fact, Peter applies that concept, meaning that the mind or the way that a person thinks is especially important for Christian living. And I'm not talking about all of the positive thinking mumbo-jumbo that we hear in books and from some people in Christian circles. I'm talking about thinking upon truth. I'm talking about meditating upon the Word of God and allowing it to saturate every aspect of your entire life. Every inch is saturated in the Word of God. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. Meaning that whatever we are feeding our internals is bound to come out of us. And if we are constantly filling it with trash music and trash TV shows and filthy books and filthy movies, if we're constantly being inundated with worldliness, well, what do you think is going to come out of us, church? The works of Satan. The very works of Satan. Solomon, one of my favorite authors of Scripture, 
said that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So church, what are you thinking on this morning? What are we thinking on? What are we meditating upon? What are we allowing to saturate our mind? Is it the things of God? Is it the things of God? You can't expect in this life to live like a Christian and exemplify Christ's character just by saying that you're a Christian. Just by speaking it. The power of the Holy Spirit enables us to live a Christ-centered and a Christ-filled life. Through the power that was given to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have no excuse. But at the same time, church, we mustn't forget, like Paul said in Romans chapter 7, why do I do the things that I hate and I don't do the things that are good or the things that I know I should do? There's still a struggle. There's a war that is waged on the mind of every single believer. Every moment that you wake up in the morning, our lips should be praying and crying out to God, God, saturate me with your truth today. God, give me the strength to put on the breastplate of righteousness. God, give me the strength to pick up my shield of faith. God, give me the strength to place that helmet upon my head so that my thoughts are protected from the evil one. There's action, church, that needs to occur in this life. Christ is not going to do it for you while you sit on the couch and veg. There's an emphasis, there's an emphasis on these very thoughts all throughout scripture. I don't know about any of you, but I have found that through the mind is often the place that we are tripped up and we are kept from fulfilling the call of Christ in our lives. Christ taught that adultery first happens in one's mind in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, he also said that anger, being the seed that brings forth murder, starts within the mind. Paul commonly focused on the way that a person thinks in Colossians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 5. Paul had a deep concern for the church, and he consistently urged the church to keep their focus on Christ by making him the center of attention. But church... When we make Christ the center of attention, it leads us to our third and our final point this morning, the call for examination. The call for examination. I want us to look back to verse number 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. I want you, if you have a physical Bible, I want you to underline let a person examine himself. I want you to, to highlight it, underline it, do something, star next to it so you never forget. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This verse here begins to address our final question. What is your plan this morning? What is your plan? 
Paul warns the Christians to treat the Lord's Supper with reverence and to practice it in the spirit of self-examination. However, this is not written with a thought of excluding. Church, don't miss this. Please don't miss this. I've had conversations with people all throughout my time in ministry where people felt like they could not partake because of something going on in their lives. I want you to understand the thought of being in a spirit of self-examination is not written with the thought to exclude you from the table, but prepare you to receive with the right heart. To prepare you to receive with the right heart, church. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven has caused some misunderstanding in that regard. The word unworthy here in the text has made some Christians believe they have to make themselves worthy in order to receive communion. Or if they, if they have sinned, that they are unworthy to come and remember what Christ did on the cross for them. I want to just be very frank this morning that that is a serious misunderstanding of what Paul is writing here in the text. If anyone needs to remember the work of Jesus on the cross, it's the one who has sinned. This morning, we are to be repentant. And our our sin should drive us to our Savior, not away from Him. However, if a Christian is in sin, a stubbornly unrepentant Christian mocks what Jesus did on the cross to cleanse them from that sin. We can never really make ourselves worthy of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He did it because of his great love for us. Not because some of us were worthy and others were not. And as we take the bread here in just a moment in the cup, we should not stare at the floor or struggle to achieve some sort of spiritual feeling. But we should be simply open to what the Holy Spirit has for us and recognize that his presence is already here with us. So Paul said, let a man examine himself. There's a clear warning for us here in Scripture in these verses not to partake until we are prepared to partake. uh, To partake, but certainly to partake after you've had your inspection. After you've had some time alone with the Lord, asking him to search you, to know you, to bring anything to light. The point is having a clear conscience and a clean heart that there is no conflict internally and there's no conflict externally with one another. And that's one of the most difficult things, isn't it, church? To have to make something right with another person because we have done something wrong. We are to come to communion and remember Christ has a plan for us to partake. And in doing so, we're doing it in a worthy manner. In a worthy manner is what Paul says. So that we can honor the one who gave his life for us. So church, have we come this morning to worship for the right purpose? Have we come for the right purpose? Are we here this morning and do we know, personally know, Jesus Christ? Do we know him? Have we come together and and are we planning to commune with God this morning and with our fellow brothers and sisters as we eat together?
are we? Today is a commemoration of, of what Christ has done and who he is in the life of a believer. And so we need to consider what areas of our lives need to be examined and changed this morning. And when that examination has occurred, my favorite part is that we get to celebrate together as a body and partake together in the Lord's Supper. And so what I'm going to ask of you to do here in just a moment, some music is going to be played. And I'm going to ask of you to please get up from your seats and to come forward and get your communion cup. Those of you in the balcony, there are communion cups on the front of um, the, the tech booth right up there for you. So you do not have to come down. But I'm going to ask of you to spend the next few minutes of time getting alone with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to please refrain from opening your cup and drinking your juice and having your wafer. This is a family meal. All throughout scripture, communion was taken as a family meal gathered with believers together. And so I'm going to ask you to spend the next bit of time in a moment of silence and examination and allow the Holy Spirit to work in this place to prepare us to be worthy to receive and partake. And so as the music starts, you can get up from your seats and come forward.
focal points here this morning as we partake in the Lord's Supper. These are symbols here that we have before us and they have no saving power in and of themselves. The bread to us symbolizes the body of Christ. The text tells us here that that body was broken for us. What it, what it means is that just as the bread gives life to the body physically, Christ gave his body for us that we might have life spiritually. The Bible describes Christ as the bread of life. It says in John chapter 6 that I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And that bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So when we gather together and we take the bread of the Lord's table, we we break it and we, we pass it amongst ourselves. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus is our life. That he is the one by whom we live. And that is what the bread symbolizes. That he, Jesus, is to be the power by which we obey the commands of God. The word of God. To love one another. To forgive one another. To be tender and merciful. To be kind and courteous. To one another, to not return evil for evil, but to pray for those who persecute us and mistrust us and misuse us. Christ's life in us enables us to be what God has asked us and called us to be. We live, church, by the means of Christ. The cup symbolizes his blood, which he said is the blood of the new covenant meaning the new arrangement for living that God has made by which the old life has ended and the new life has come. And that is what this cup before us means. We agree to that we are no longer living for our old self, that we take the cup and drink it. We are publicly proclaiming this morning that we agree with the sentence of death upon our old life. That as we believe the Christian life is a continual experience of life coming out of death. It is the bread that gives us new life. It is the blood by which that new life flows through each and every one of us this morning. So as we have come to the table, we remember that Christ gave his life so that we might have new life and live in that new life. And so church family, we know from scripture that there was a prayer of thanksgiving over the elements before they were taken. So we will eat together as a family in unison. So if you would at this time, please open your cup if you have not done so. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes as, as a prayer is given for the body bread, the blood, the cup. God, we come to you in this place. 
Lord, and I cannot even fathom the, the pain and the suffering that your son Christ endured for us. He willingly and knowingly went to the cross on our behalf to take the weight and the sins of us upon the world and place them upon his shoulders, God, as, as he hung upon that cross, as he was beaten and bruised, as he was bloodied, God. Unrecognizable, he hung there. And some of his final words were, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. An example was set, Lord, that I, I believe oftentimes we are irreverent or unthankful for. And so, Lord, we're coming to you in humility this morning saying thank you. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price that you paid, bearing all of our sin and our shame. And it was love that brought you to us. You came to us. And it was almost as if you sang amazing grace over us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take these emblems this morning in a serious manner that we, we, would, we would never forget, God, what you have done. The sacrifice that you made, the life that you bring, the forgiveness that comes, the mercy and grace, the peace, the love, the joy. Holy Spirit, use this, this moment now as we, we eat together as a family to call our minds to meditate upon these truths this this day and I ask and pray these things now in Jesus name amen Jesus said that as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me so let us eat together at this time and in the same manner he took the cup with which was the new covenant in his blood he said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so church, this do in remembrance of me as well. Let us drink. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place and we thank you for this day. We thank you for a place where we can gather together in remembrance, Lord, of what you have done for us. And so, Lord, we ask of you now to give us strength and, and courage and boldness and liberty as we part from here. Lord, that our minds would be dwelling upon truth, that we would study your scripture, that we would be a people who are concerned about the lives of those who are hopeless and hurting, that we would be a people that bring that hope to them. God, I'm asking for your strength as we depart from here, but I'm asking for your protection, Lord, as we go about our lives, that we would be cognizant of the mission field before us and that we would be prepared to come back Wednesday and Sunday to, to worship you in fellowship uh, with other believers. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.